Good morning, FCBC Walnut family and friends. Happy Father's Day! What a joy it is for us to worship online together on this occasion. I want to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 3 to begin our morning. Starting in verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When we think of a day like today, Father's Day, we might be thinking of our earthly fathers and the spiritual fathers that are in our lives as the point of reference. However, the Apostle Paul wants to remind us that it is actually our Heavenly Father revealed by His Son Jesus Christ that sets the pattern, that commissions, and that also is Lord over the fathers in this world, whether in our homes or in our churches. And so what a joy it is for us to be able to worship together because we're reminded then that we need to look upward toward God as the pattern, as the perfect role model, as the complete example of what it means to be father. And then it is with him leading us. It is him as the one that protects and watches over us that then we who are earthly fathers can strive to be servant leaders and disciple makers in the home and we who are spiritual fathers can invest in those intergenerational relationships in the church and be mentors in the lives of the spiritual children that God has given to us so that we can continue to run together as households and as the family of God here at FCBC Walnuts and to wherever it is that God takes us. So during this time, as we begin our morning worship, I want to encourage you to consider your earthly fathers and your spiritual fathers. In fact, if you're next to your earthly father right now, pat him on the back, give him a high five, say thank you, say happy Father's Day. If you're not with your father, please consider how you could be praying for him. In fact, pray for him right now during this time. Just shoot up a short prayer to our Heavenly Father on behalf of your dad. Send him a text right now and just wish him Happy Father's Day. Extend to him some sentiment, some note of appreciation, even if you guys haven't spoken in a while. Now, I know that in our midst, there are certainly some of us who are in conflict with our earthly fathers, or maybe we are in conflict with our spiritual fathers as well. This is when we need the help of our Heavenly Father to bring about reconciliation by first reminding us of how He has restored us to Himself through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that He adopted us into His household. And so as He has forgiven us, then we could be ambassadors of reconciliation to our earthly fathers and to our spiritual fathers. If you are in that scenario in which there is brokenness between you and your earthly father or your heavenly father, and perhaps maybe your earthly father or heavenly father, they have passed on and there are unresolved issues. Take the time right now just to pray, just to ask God for help. Ask him to soften your heart and then consider how he may use you to be a part of reconciliation and a part of restoration in the life of your earthly father and heavenly father and spiritual father.
Now, a few announcements I want to highlight, which can be found in a digital bulletin. And I want to encourage you to read through the digital bulletin to be able to have the full picture of what is going on in our church family. The first announcement is this. Next Sunday is the last Sunday of the month. And so that's when we, as a church family, participate in the Lord's Supper. So if you're a baptized believer, please look ahead to this coming Sunday with expectation because the Lord's Supper is one of the most tangible ways for us to be reminded that God is our Heavenly Father and that we are one another's brothers and sisters in Christ. Prepare the elements accordingly. And I ask you as a family then or in your household to prepare your hearts to partake of this together next Sunday. Please continue to pray for our reopening task force who meets every week as well as plan diligently during the week to be able to prepare us for reopening beginning in July, the soft reopening. As we look ahead then into August and beyond, we need God's wisdom. We need God's discernment. We also need to communicate well and we also need to hear from you as to where you're at so that we can return as the church scattered back to 1555 Fairway Drive as the church gathered in unity. And so please continue to pray for them and continue to also engage in the opportunities that you have. Meanwhile, I encourage you to participate and join in our Wednesday night prayer meeting, whether as a youth at 630 or as the English congregation at 830. It's such a wonderful time to hear what God is doing in our midst. So come pray with us. Come and be fed with us. Come and encourage one another together. Additionally, if you want to give, whether towards our mission board and our short-term missions and long-term endeavors, please denote that in your giving. Or if you want to give towards our relief team and their efforts, please denote it for the Compassion Fund. Along the way, we're going to continue to journey through the book of Ezra as we are in chapter 4 today to finish it out. So let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word through Pastor Albert's preaching, and also as we consider how he can use us on the day like today, Father's Day, to be a blessing to our earthly and spiritual fathers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to call you that. That is such a close relationship that we have with you through Christ. That it is an identity that can never be shaken. That to be a part of your household means that we are your children forever, that you will never leave or forsake us, that you are the perfect father in every way. And it is through your example, through your empowerment, and through your change and transformation in our lives, that we who are earthly fathers can continue to strive to be servant leaders and disciple makers. And also we who are spiritual fathers are able to invest in the lives of others. And we who are under the covering of earthly fathers and spiritual fathers can continue to be blessed and continue to be reconciled and continue to be enriched in our lives by their investment in us. We thank you, Father, above and beyond for all of this, for setting the pattern, for being the one that we can look to as the perfect father. God, I want to pray, Lord, for the fathers in the households in our midst. We ask God that you would strengthen them, Lord, as they work. We pray that you would strengthen their marriages, Lord, that the relationship they have with their spouses will continue, Lord, to grow and to be made better with time as they continue to pursue the marriage covenant together. We pray, Father, for reconciliation, Lord, in marriages if it's needed. And we pray, Father, for you to be the one that helps 
the conflicts to be resolved in every household. We also pray, Father, for the father's relationships with their children. Lord, no matter how old the children are, we pray, Father, for a growing and maturing relationship between earthly fathers and their children that you have given to them as stewardship, but also as gifts. We pray, Father, for the opportunity, God, for them to grow their relationship and for their conversation to deepen and for the earthly fathers to continue, Lord, to persevere in pursuing their children because you have pursued them as their heavenly father. We also want to pray for the spiritual fathers in our midst. We ask God as you have put spiritual children in their lives, whether in children's ministry, whether in youth ministry, whether it's in other ways of intergenerational mentoring, we ask God that you would continue to also use them in the spiritual family to be a resource, but also to be a blessing. We pray, Father, that everyone who is a, who is being mentored by spiritual fathers, Lord, would continue to engage, would continue to be proactive, and we pray, Father, for a deepening relationship on those fronts as well. We thank you, Father, all this is possible because the fullness in Christ is what you desire for us to experience in fatherhood. And so, Lord, we look to you and we ask you for help. Father, we continue to pray, Lord, for a reopening task force that you would lead and guide them as well. Father, so that you would draw us near to your presence again, physically, one step at a time. And finally, we pray, Lord, in this season of protests and pandemic, that we continue to look to you, our Heavenly Father, to meet us and provide for our needs. God, that you would help us to come before you in desperation, in surrender, and in simplicity, knowing, Lord, that you hear our cries, that you answer our prayers, and, Father, that nothing that we are going through is out of your purview or out of your control. Help us, Father, to trust you, and we pray that you would deepen our walk with you in your word, in prayer, and also as we gather even now to receive the preaching of your word. Father, show us in your word, in the power of your Holy Spirit, how you want us to know you and how you want us to live, even in the midst of opposition. And we praise you, Father, for being our perfect Heavenly Father that protects us, that leads us, that loves us, and that knows us. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Good morning, church. Happy Father's Day to the fathers, fathers-to-be, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers. May God bless you on Father's Day. May God empower you to stand up for God, for the church, for family and marriage and children, and for our nation, that you may do justice and to love mercies and to walk humbly with your God. In the last week in Ezra, Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, we preach on how the adversaries frustrates the rebuilding of the temple. And today, we want to study the rest of the chapter 4 because the opposition lingers on. The oppositions are lingering. Let me read to you Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 to 24. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Actasasus, Bashlam and Mithredath, and Tabel and the rest of their associates wrote to Actasasus, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehim, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Actasasus, the king, as follows. Rehim, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, 
and the rest of the associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapa deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Athasasus the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came out from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute custom at all, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, and therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to the kings and provinces, and their sedition was stirred up in from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in a province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Simshai the scribe and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting, and now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from all from of all has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition has been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem and rule over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, made a decree that this man be made to cease, and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this manner. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when a copy of King Athesas's letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the last week, in the last two verses, in verses 5 and 5, the scripture says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You know, after that verse is being said, we should go straight to verse 24, to the end of the chapter, and says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So it stopped for 16 years, until the second year of the reign of Darius, where King Darius kick-start the rebuilding process again for them to carry on. Now, with the help of two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the temple was completed five years later. Okay, So it was described in detail in chapter 5 and chapter 6. But the opposition lingered on after the rebuilding of the temple. So between verses 1 to 5 and verse 24, Ezra inserted 
two major events, one in verse 6, a second one in verses 7 to 23, to make the case that the opposition lingered on many, many years later. And these events happened long after the temple was rebuilt. And the first incident happens 50 years later of the King Cyrus in 486. It's in verse 6. In verse 6 it says, And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Fifty years later, the opposition carries on, continue to oppose the rebuilding of the temple, of the project. And who is King Ahasuerus? Well, he is the husband of Queen Esther. And the accusation was presented before him. Now, we have no records of the letter, at least it is not recorded in the book of Ezra. But one statement, one verse tells it all. The opposition lingers on. But after the first incident, 30 years later, a second incident happened under King Ahasuerus in verses 7 to 23 in a long passage that we will go into detail later to explain it. Okay. See, during that time, uh, Ezra brought back the second wave of the returnees to rebuild the spiritual life and also spent some time to rebuild the city and the foundation. But it was stopped again because the enemy were relentless. They were opposing the work and they probably burned the gates and broke down the wall. And that's why when Nehemiah was in the palace of Persia as the cupbearer, heard from those who returned to Persia and told them that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and the gates were destroyed by fire. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3 and verse 6, he sat down and wept and mourned for days. And that's what happened. You know, we wonder why. Why was Ezra embarking on this long historical records and incidents to prove that the opposition lingering on for many, many years? Well, I think there are three reasons. One, that the decision to reject their help was justified. Remember in verses 3 and 4, it says, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, and we alone will build to the Lord. When it comes to compromise and when it comes to invite the Jews to work together with them, they say, no, no compromise. And it is justified because the enemies are persistent. You can't just work with them. Secondly, then we understand why the completion of the rebuilding was so sweet because it was hard-earned. It took them a lot of effort to face the opposition, to carry on the work, and finally the building, the completion of the uh, rebuilding of the temple was completed. It was a grateful and joyful time of celebration. Now we understand. And thirdly, even further down the book of Ezra in chapter 9 and 10, Ezra was dealing with the mixed marriages that was about to corrupt the spiritual life of the Israelites. Now it was dealt with very severely. There was no compromise. They were severed in their relationship. Now we understand why, because the enemies you just cannot form any kind of alliance with them because they will corrupt your spiritual life. Now, with that background and with that historical background, let us move to focus on uh, verses 7 to 23 and learn a few lessons on the re when the rebuilding of the wall was uh, stopped. First of all, I want to share with you that there's enemies. The enemies were many. 
in verses seven to ten. Now it says the letter was written in Aramaic, and Aramaic was the language that was pretty common to everybody during that time. So the Jews and the Gentiles they will both have this common language to share. But you know what? Adversaries attract more adversaries. In verse seven to ten shows with many many verses that there's a coalition of opponents, and they are well represented. They are from the political realm, from the judicial realm. Different cultural backgrounds and different ethnicities—they all group together in adversity against the Israelites in their rebuilding of the temple and rebuilding of the wall as well. So it mentioned about Bishlam and Mithredath and Tabel. Probably these are the men of Samaria, and then the oppositions enlisted the help of the Persian officials. It says the Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe. These are the Persian officials, and it says they are the rest. Of the associates, they were judges, the governors, the officials, and they were Persians and men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapa deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Who is that noble Osnapa? Well, he's an Assyrian king who succeeded Esarhaddon. Who continues to deport? Who continues to assimilate people from Assyria into the Northern Kingdom? And not only in Samaria, but also he says、uh, in province beyond the river. What river? That river is Euphrates. If you look from the angle of a Persian Empire and look down further beyond the Euphrates River, that will be the southern, southwestern part of the. Uh, empire, and that includes Syria, Phoenicia. That includes Palestine, Jerusalem, of, of course, and Babylon. So they were well represented, and widespread of adversaries who are grouping together, writing a letter against and opposed the rebuilding of the wall. What is this implying? This implies that everyone is against these people. That's the message they want to send to the king. Just look at the names and the different backgrounds. If all these men from such a diverse background and places can agree together against all the Jews, then the Jews must be the problem. the The majority must be right, and the Jews are the source of trouble. The enemies were many; they were growing in their numbers against and opposing the work of God. You know how does the number of opponents grow? See, adversaries attract more adversaries. Common cause brings people together. We come together because we have a common value, common cause, common goal. But there are other reasons why people come together. Why do we see movements and why do we see people coming together? A lot of times because there's discontentment, angry people, anxious people, fearful people. Jealous people, disgruntled people. There's a lot of discontentment in their hearts when they see a cause, when they see a movement, when they see something happening. They want to join in and express their anger, express their fear, and express their anxiety, express their jealousy, express their disgruntlement. That's what draws people together. But there's also so common in a society today of the victim syndrome, the blame others. It's not my fault. It's others. 
It's other people doing that to me, so I'm fighting back. That victim syndrome also draws a lot of people into the opponent's camp. But there are also manipulations today, with the Wi-Fi connected world, fake news and cyber army, cyber bully pressurizing people to take a stand, take a position. Uh, messaging, flooding the social networks, shaping your mind and stirring you up emotionally. Adversaries attract more adversaries. Discontentments draw more discontented people. But they are also opportunists. Opportunists are people who are waiting for a crisis to happen to create, using that crisis to create a platform to benefit themselves, to serve their own agenda, to catapult them to stardom. To gain national recognition, that's why a lot of times opponents, oppositions keep growing and keep growing. They're just sucking all the negative energies into it. Now they are they are good movements, they are noble causes, but a lot of times other dishonorable causes feel even more people coming together. Probably this is the case. Probably it happens in our society in our life today. But secondly. Let's look at the accusations. They were calculative in verses 11 to 16. So the Israelites' enemies they presented three reasons to Artaxerxes that he should withdraw the Jewish building permit and stop the rebuilding permit. And there are three reasons. First, he wanted them that the Jews would stop paying taxes when their fortification were complete. In verse 13, he says, "Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired." They reminded him that Jerusalem is a rebellious and wicked city. They will not pay their tax when the city is fortified because they can fight back now. They can oppose. The strong and mighty Persian army. Now, see who are these Jews? These are the second wave of the returnees under Ezra. They came back primarily to rebuild the spiritual life of the nation of the Israelites, but secondly, they also spent some time to rebuild the city, and it was stopped. And the opponents were not happy with it. They want the king to stop the whole project. The second reason, besides stop, they would stop paying taxes, is the consequence decline in revenues would hurt the king's reputation. In verse fourteen, says now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, and therefore we send and inform the king. It is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Your reputation. Is in ruin. Will be in ruin, King. Don't do that. If you cannot collect the tax and and customs and tolls, it will send a message to the rest of the empire that you are weakening, and people will laugh at you. Don't do that. Why? Because because we eat the salt of the palace, meaning we are on the payroll of the palace, and we want to stand up for you. We want to speak on your behalf. So, besides, they will stop paying taxes. Besides, your reputation will be in ruin. And thirdly,、uh, in verses fifteen and sixteen, if the Jews continue to rebuild the city, and they have a reputation for rebellion, their actions might encourage other peoples in other parts of the empire 
to revolt. Now that is a threat. That is threatening. Verses 15 and 16. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that the city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid in ruin. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. You will lose control of all these provinces of Palestine, of of Phoenicia, of Assyria, of Syria, of of Babylon. You will lose control of them because Israelites will take the lead, and other people will follow suit. That's dangerous. Don't do that. Because Jerusalem has a bad track record; they are bad. It is a rebellious city. Now, again, this is a half truth and misinformation. Yes, Israelites has revoked and rebelled against under other uh, occupiers uh, who occupied the land. But remember, in Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine, God reminds them for the seventy years of captivity in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for Babylon, and wait for the time to mature, and I will bring you back. So they were peaceful people, actually. So there was this、uh, half truth and misinformation that they try to bring and present before the king. Be calculative in their accusation to their own advantage, so that they can stop the rebuilding of the temple. How do you do that? Well, if we reflected on the letter, basically there are three points. One, they paint a bleak picture, as bleak as possible, a pessimistic future. If you carry on with the rebuilding of the city, and secondly, they exaggerate. They blow up the loss to the treasury of the kingdom, the threats to the mighty Persian Empire. As big as possible to exaggerate. They paint a bleak picture. They exaggerate, and thirdly, they use scare tactic, fear tactic. It works all the time because everybody is scary. When when people are scary, they react, they respond, they push back, and that's what they try to do to the king、um, of、uh, of the Persian Empire. Because fear drives people, including the king. The accusation were calculative to achieve their goal to stop the rebuilding. And thirdly, in verses seventeen to twenty-three, the work was temporarily stopped. So, in his reply, Artaxerxes explained that having done some research, he concluded that it might it seems to be in the best interest to halt the work temporarily. So he put an order to stop the work into effect only until he could determine a permanent solution to the problem. In verse twenty-one, he says, "Until a decree is made by me, stop." So the work was stopped temporarily until he thought of a better solution. That is a very interesting expression. Until I think of a permanent solution, but God has the permanent solution. God has the final say. Because years later, Nehemiah will be sent by the same king to rebuild the city, to rebuild the wall. In 444 BC, Artaxerxes released Nehemiah from the Persian palace as the cupbearer, 
and sent him to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Evidently, the king has concluded that all things considered, it was better to have Jerusalem defended than undefended. You see, everything plays into the scheme, into the hands of God to achieve His purpose. And of course, when the Samaritans receive Artaxerxes' reply, they immediately force the Jews to stop building the wall. And they may have even destroyed parts of the rebuilding wall and burned the gates. And that's why in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, that's what Nehemiah heard, that the gates were burned and the city was laying in ruin. You know, oppositions linger on and on and on. But you know what the message today? The message today is the oppositions cannot frustrate God's work because God is faithful to His people and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything goes according to God's plan. God allows things to happen to achieve His own purpose and His will. And His will is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ ultimately will come to bring salvation to the Jews and the rest of the world. So God is preserving these returnees. Let them rebuild the temple, carry on with the temple sacrifices and works, continue to wait until the Messiah comes. And it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ that once and for all, He offered Himself as a sacrifice on the cross to die on our behalf that we can be reconciled with the Father through Jesus Christ. The oppositions cannot frustrate God's work because God is faithful to His people and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, I want to share with you three reminders, three reflections or applications with you. First of all, remember, God is the Lord of history. When we read the oppositions for almost 100 years, but over and over again, God preserved His people. God preserved His plan. God preserved the temple. God preserved uh, them until the Messiah comes again. God is the Lord of history. You know, today we live in the COVID-19 pandemic. And on top of that, we are experiencing racial tension in our country. And we look around the world, we see Hong Kong unrest. And also globally, economic downturns. There's a lot of fear and anxiety. And they are all happening at the same time for this season. Why? Maybe because God is telling us that, remember, we have no control of our future, but He controls the future. Maybe He's sending a message to us that, that, that we destroy our future by taking things into our own hands at the impulse of our desire. Maybe He's reminding us that many of what we are experiencing today are our own doing and we are eating our own humble pie. You know, the greed, greed at the expense of others at the environment caused many of these problems. Hatred, hatred that passes from generation to generation just split our society. Freedom, freedom with no restraint hurts others. Human rights, human rights with no regard for absolute truth, then everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes and nobody can live in peace anymore. And screaming and shouting at each other without listening to each other is not going to bring healing to such society. That's what happened. 
maybe instead of screaming at God, showing your feast at God, swinging your feast at God, cursing God, blaming God, and doing all kinds of things to try to delete God from your memory, delete God from your life. You know, all these things doesn't affect one bit of God because God sits on the throne. He is sovereign. Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Oftentimes before, we blame on other things. And if a sense of victim syndrome, maybe many of the happenings are the blaming, uh, the doing of ourselves. God is the Lord of history. You know, confession, confession is much lacking in our times. Owning up to our responsibilities is missing in our lives. Returning back to God is not considered progressive enough in our days. We want to be our own God and see what happened. We messed up everything. That's what happened. Remember, God is the Lord of history. And secondly, I want to remind you that when the oppositions drag on, we must fight on. The opposition drags on. There will be oppositions, but we must fight on. In Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Silas, when Paul was preaching the gospel and he was stoned, but he exhorted Christians in Antioch and Lystra and Iconium, these cities, and said, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. That is the fact for Christians. Through many tribulations, sufferings, we will enter the kingdom of God. You know, in our church exit, we have this exit sign that says, you are entering the mission field. You know, you are going out back to your home, but you are entering the mission field. We are sent out to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. But there's a parenthesis that is not written there, but that is assumed. The assumption is it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Because you are aliens sent into a community of different values and different systems. And you, you will be singled out. And there will be a lot of sufferings and struggles and difficulties. And you must be tough. You must be strong. It's going to be tough. But remember, He is the Lord of history. Even though the oppositions drag on, we must fight on because He's the Lord of history. He has made all things beautiful in its time. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 reminds us, he makes all things beautiful in his time. They crucified Jesus, but he rose again on the third day. They imprisoned Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi, but the Lord shaken up the prison to release his servants. They threw Daniel into the lion's den, but the Lord sealed the mouth of the lions, and he was unharmed. They threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. But you know what? They walk in the midst of the fire and emerge with no smell of fire on them. Today, I want to challenge the fathers. It's Father's Day. 
Fathers, fight for your family. Fight for your marriage. Fight for your children. Do your best to serve them and to lead them well. Lead them. Be a first disciple makers of your family. And, and support other fathers as well. Men, lock arms together. Journey together. It is a tough war. Uphold justice. Love mercies. And walk humbly with your God. And finally, I want to share with you the third reflection is Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 14 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The opposition to God's plan of salvation ultimately is resolved at the cross of Jesus. Even after the records in chapter 4 of 100 years of opposition, but as God's people continue to walk with him, they were oppositions after oppositions, persecutions after persecutions, difficulties after difficulties. But ultimately, the opposition is resolved at the cross of Jesus. I don't mean that they go away. I mean that they are resolved by the cross of Jesus. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even those who crucified him, even the religious leaders who sent him to be crucified, Jesus invited them to come and be reconciled with God and be reconciled with the Father. Romans 5 Verse 10 says, for, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. We were enemies with God, but Christ on the cross reconciled us with the Heavenly Father. But more than that, the enmities between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews was ethnocentric. They are the chosen people of God. And Jews and Gentiles, there are so much differences in culture, in linguistic in, in traditions, that it was, it was hard for them to accept each other, especially for the Jews. The, there, there was no coming together. But through Jesus Christ, the dividing wall is broken. They were able to come together and to become one body in Christ because of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is our peace. You know, it is sad today that we don't see a lot of coming together. We don't see a lot of listening to one another. We don't see a lot of communication and try to understand each other's position, including the church of Jesus Christ. We are divided by politics. We are divided by social movements. We refuse to understand, to listen to each other. A lot of slogans are crafted by people, but very little common grounds is highlighted in the midst of conflicts and tensions that is tearing apart the fiber of our society. And I remember a song uh, written by Paul Simon in the 60s called Sound of Silence. And in one of the stanzas, he says, and in the naked light, I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never share. No one there disturbed the sound of silence. That's what happened today. That happens in the 60s that he reflected and put in these lyrics. It is still true today. We are not listening. 
We talk what we want. We speak what we want. But we refuse to listen to other people and try to understand their opinion. And in the next stanza, he says, Fool, say I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grow. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell and echo in the wells of silence. You try to reach out to people, but they push back. You try to extend your hands, but they push back. They refuse to communicate. They refuse to understand. And everybody's lonely because of that. And finally, in the next stanza, he says, And the people bow and pray to the neon god they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said, The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls and whisper in the sounds of silence. In the midst of silence, in the midst of refusal to listen, to communicate, to understand, to forge unity, to see that we have much more commonality than differences. The writing is on the wall. You know, that reminds me of Daniel chapter 5, when King Belshazzar used and defiled the vessel of the temple that they have taken from Jerusalem and placed it in their treasury, in, their, in the palace, and in the party and celebration. He took it out and defiled those vessels, and they were handwriting on a wall. And the handwriting on the wall, you remember, it says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, not enough. You fall short of the measurement in the weights, in the balances. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. I think this is the same message that we need to take heed today, brothers and sisters. The handwriting is on the wall. That if we do not take heed, if we do not listen, if we do not communicate, if we do not appreciate each other, if we do not remember that we have so much more commonalities than we have the differences, then that our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. That's a, that's a warning from Daniel chapter 5. You know, sometimes people are loud and vocal. They are screaming and blasting and they are attractive because they are being heard. But I remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, it says, If I speak the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Could that be that today's strong emotions and screamings and try to drown out each other and try to push each other away and push each other's back by screaming and blasting. It is just an indication that there is no love existing in our midst. You know, sometimes we feel that we are the mainstream. We need to align with the mainstream. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 reminds us, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Jesus said, I am the narrow gate. Enter through me, through the cross of Jesus, and be my disciples. That's the right way. But the gate, other gate is wide and is easy, and many people join in there. But that is the wrong way. Could it be? Could it be that the majority voices that we think, the majority trend that we are joining, may not be the path of the cross of Jesus that he wants us to embark on? 
You know, today we want the pastors to to make us take a stand. We want the church to preach His word to show a certain direction. But you know what? We are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, because in Acts chapter six, verses three and four reminds us. Therefore, brothers, when there were some issues and crises in the early church, he says, "Therefore, brothers, pick up from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty." But We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We are called to pray and to preach the word of God. You are led by God to stand up for Jesus, to be witnesses in different parts, in different ways, and in different positions. But we want to teach you the word of God, the gospel. We want to preach the gospel of reconciliation. That's what we are called to do. You know, in our church, we have people standing on different issues in different positions, and they are all respected because that is a responsibility as a citizen. That is a responsibility as a Christian. But we who are called to be pastors, we just want to serve you by praying for you and ministering the gospel of reconciliation to you. And may you seek wisdom from God and discernment from God, so that you are doing the right thing to represent Christ well in wherever. You are embarking on together. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that as we continue to journey with you, as we seek wisdom from God, you will teach us to know how to do the right thing, to do the things that will please the hearts of the Lord, and teach us to learn how to listen to each other, so that we are able to express love and kindness to one another in the midst of tension, in the midst of conflicts. May you bring our church together to worship our great God and submit to your lordship, and allow God to move in our hearts so that we know how to respond and to know how to do your will. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Receive the benedictions. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Heavenly Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. In Jesus' name, Amen. God be with you.